Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Very happy to be with you today. And thank you for tuning in. It's our privilege, again, to open the Bible together. And you may be blessed as you listen to this uh, broadcast. Jesus is our faithful brother. And we have a lot of things to learn from this. Because in these days, we live in a very individualistic-oriented uh, society. When even... Uh, to have that relationship, you know, like a, a brother, even as we may say the brother in Christ. But it's wonderful to have Jesus Christ, our uh, brother. I would like to welcome uh, the members of the panel for today. And thank you, Joe, for joining us today. Thank you, Nick. It's always a pleasure. And it's the same today. I love being here. Thank you. Great. Will, it's good to have you with us. It's both a privilege and an inspiration. Thank you, Nick. Brenton, it's also good to have you with us. Thank you, Nick. I'm really looking forward to us um, sharing this topic with our listeners today. And Lija, thank you for joining. Yeah, it's a privilege. Thank you. Ken, it's good to have you with us also. And I'd like to thank you for um, stepping in for our uh, brother Len, who is not well in this morning, which our prayer goes towards him also. Thank you for um, joining and taking uh, the role of facilitator today. Thank you, Nick. It's always a privilege and honour to be part of this panel. And I just really enjoyed every week as we meet and uh, learn so much from it. With no further comments, uh, Ken, I'd like to just uh, hand it over to you. Please take us through. Thank you, Nick. Hello, listeners, and welcome to today's Bible study entitled Jesus, Our Faithful Brother. It may seem an odd title, Our Faithful Brother, but it tells us in Hebrews 2 that Jesus refers to his children, his followers, as brothers. What an amazing statement. You and I, the brothers of the King of the universe. You see, Jesus desires a close relationship with us, and among other descriptions, wants us to recognize him as our brother. What a beautiful title, brother. As much as we understand Jesus as Savior and Lord, ruler, judge, creator, and substitute, brother is personal, warm, and reassuring. Although it is disrespectful to bring Christ down to our human level, yet we may still treat him as our elder brother. It is your privilege to belong to the family of God, and we have Jesus as your brother. Today we will see what the Bible has to say about our brother Jesus. But before we start, I'm going to ask Will to open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus took upon himself the frailties of human flesh so that we may be adopted into the family of God yes. and make heaven our home mm. through his life and his sacrifice and intercession. We commit ourselves and this Bible study to you for your blessing and guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Will. Brenton, in the instructions the Lord gave to ancient Israel, provision was made to redeem the debt of a debtor by a close relative, the next of kin, often the brother. Would you explain this one to us? Well, let me just read it, uh, Ken, first of all. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. 
God's provisions for ancient Israel in regard to debt, I think, Ken, we really should spend more time having a look at those. Uh, I believe it was not God's plan that there ever be those who were extremely rich and those who were extremely poor. And this is just an example. Now, the brother could be a physical blood brother, but it could be just a close relative, a bit like what we're going to look at in um, Ruth, where uh, a near of kin came to redeem it. In actual fact, if you read on a little bit further, it says that if the person himself is able to redeem it, uh, at some future time he may, but he has to count the time between when he sold the property to when he wishes to redeem it. I believe it was God's intention that nobody suffer the indignity of being so poor that they either had to sell themselves, even though God made provision for that. I believe that it was not God's intention. Maybe there's a lesson for us today, Ken, to think about there. There are those around us who are desperately in need. And what can we do to help them? Because even though we may not be a brother or a sister in the physical sense, in spiritual sense, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And I believe we have a responsibility to help those who are in need. Thank you, Brenton. An example of this is recorded in Ruth chapter 4. Who redeemed that land? Naomi desired to sell. Well, it's the story of Boaz. In this story found in Ruth chapter 4, we see a widow called Naomi who owned some land that was her husband's. But because of his death, it had now passed down to her. The story is a little bit involved, but I will try to keep it simple. (laughs) Naomi has just returned home from the country of Moab with her daughter-in-law, who was a Moab, whose husband had also died. Now, Naomi's late husband had a very wealthy family member called Boaz, who was a man of God and honest in his dealings with people. However, he was not nixed in line to redeem or purchase the land as there was another closer family member before him. So the land is first offered to the next of kin, who was very happy to get this land as it would make him lots of money. However, part of the law stated that if a woman lost her husband, the next of kin of the deceased had to marry the woman and raise up family with her to keep the name going. Now, when Boaz pointed out to the closer relative that he would have to marry Ruth the Moabite and raise a family with her, he refused so the land then passed on to the next in line, who was Boaz, who followed the law of Moses, which God had given him many years previous, was still being used. So Boaz, who was more interested in Ruth than the land, ended up with both. Joe, there's also the Old Testament practice of avenging of blood. What was all this about? Would you explain this one? Well, Ken, this was a common practice in ancient, in ancient societies, Um, And indeed, similar principles are carried out in certain societies to this very day. In the book of Numbers, it is permitted that if a member of the family died at the hands of another, then that the avenger of the blood was allowed to take the life of the killer. Now, you know, as I've already mentioned, this was a common practice in ancient societies. So most people could not have um, access to justice or what they perceived as justice any other way. Okay, so that you know we don't they didn't have what we've got today. As you know, troubled as it is, we you know it's still a better system. This system may seem barbaric, but it was effective in that 
I imagine it provided a bit of a deterrent and gave some protection to the individual. People would know that if they murdered someone, there would be a swift day of reckoning. And also, if they were murdered, that someone would hold the murderer to account. So it, it served a purpose, although quite uh, quite barbaric. This ancient system of justice did not allow much wriggle room for causing accidental death, however. And in Numbers, we find that God is making provision for those misfortunate enough to cause accidental death. Um, significantly, the Bible does make a clear distinction between killing and murder. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. Hence, when they crossed into the promised land, they were to designate six cities where someone who had caused the death of another, albeit intentionally or accidentally, could seek refuge. They were called the cities of refuge. And there were three on one side of the Jordan and three on the other so that everybody had access to them. This also, by the way, included any foreigners among them. So one would flee to one of these cities and would be given sanctuary until the investigation and if found innocent, they would be given sanctuary. And it's a little bit more complicated than that. But if not, if they were found guilty, well, they would have to face the consequences. So the role of the avenger of the blood, generally the nearest male relative, often a brother, steps in to exact justice for the death. And what Jesus did for us is similar in, in many ways. Interesting story, that one. <laughs> Beecher. Would restoring justice have been a pleasant task for the adventure of blood? I don't think so, because it carries responsibility for some people could be a burden. It's not a pleasant task to do that. And uh, some people are refusing, as it happened in the case of uh, uh, Ruth's family. And um, some people uh, find it a burden to do that, because has taken uh, from stage to stages and uh, it carries in, in people's mind stigma and uh, sentiments of reproach and uh, maybe hatred and, uh, yeah. Very good. Nick, you have something to add to that? Yeah, just uh, as we look into the Old Testament in particular and uh, as Joe pointed out that... Uh, you know, seems so uh, barbaric, you know, some of those things, you know, which uh, we read in the Old Testament. What I get here when we put together this picture about uh, family, how a brother, what sort of resp responsibility a brother has. Because as we know in families, because of brothers, there are lots of dissensions, you know, because everyone wants his uh, part, you know, and it could be very difficult for a family to function well when you put in the picture there the brotherhood. And in the Old Testament, this was encouraged to take responsibility in the family. Now, as we link this, and we'll discuss a bit more as we go, how Jesus stood up and gave us the ultimate example of uh, the brother, the, the real brother, the real good brother, uh, which we should um, yeah, take notice of in, in our own circumstances, because uh, dysfunction 
today in society is because of that also, because brothers are against each other. And we can easily see that, uh, you know, in, in society, in church, in, in family, actually, in the, in actual family. We're looking forward to see, you know, the example of Jesus, how he portrayed uh, the role of the brother. Absolutely true there, Nick. Ken, there were just a couple of points that I found really interesting in what Joe shared with us and, um, and Nick and others, and that's this. The roads that led to these six cities of refuge were kept in top condition. So obviously the highways department was on the job and um, they made sure that the roads were in first-class condition because if you accidentally killed somebody, you had to move quickly. And along the way, there were signposts pointing to the city of refuge or cities of refuge. When you got to the city, there was actually someone there to welcome you and let you in. And as Joe has pointed out, um, your case would then be decided ultimately. However, there was a very important proviso. If you left the city of refuge for any reason, it would be possible for the avenger of blood to kill you. Now, you can draw some very interesting spiritual analogies from that, but basically Christ is our city of refuge. If we leave that, we are open prey to Satan. Very good point, Brenton. Mm. Will, in a spiritual sense, Jesus, our brother, is our avenger of blood. Joe, would you like to elaborate a little bit on that? Look, there's an interesting, there's a couple of texts that uh, kind of draw that analogy with with Jesus. And one of them is in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And it says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, you know, hence the brotherhood, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Um, we know that we are all basically slain by sin. And so uh, to actually avenge our blood, he destroys the destroyer. There's another one also that I really like in Deuteronomy 32:43, And this one says, rejoice you nations with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. And so here we have that connection, this uh, metaphor of the avenger of the blood being ascribed to Jesus, who then avenges um, the blood of his servants. Also in Revelation, um, I haven't got the exact quote here, but how long, Lord, how long, you know, um, before you avenge our blood? So, yeah, yeah, definitely there's a strong connection there. Thank you. The Hebrew believers could understand the concept of avenging but the Apostle Paul emphasized that Jesus shared the humanity of mankind. He also experienced pain, joy, heartache, sorrow, loneliness, and hunger. Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, our avenger of blood, was not some kind of super robot. He was of the same flesh and blood as we are. He was fully human. Will, would you like to tell us a bit more about this? It's very comforting indeed, Ken, panel and listener, that Jesus is intimately part of our human family. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet without sin. You know, it's wonderful to think that Jesus 
who was in all things made like unto his brethren. He became flesh even as we are. He was hungry and thirsty and weary. He was sustained by food, refreshed by sleep. He shared the lot of man, and yet he was the blameless son of God. He was, in fact, God in the flesh. You know, we must never forget that the human nature of Christ is likened to ours. And suffering, suffering itself was more keenly felt by him. For his spiritual nature, being free from every taint of sin, uh, meant that he felt very keenly the effects of sin and transgression. And therefore, I believe his desire for the removal of suffering was stronger than human beings can ever experience. And so he knows what we're like. He feels what we feel. And he is ready to give salvation from all the unpleasantness of life. Brenton, what does Jesus call those who accept him as Lord? Hebrews 2.10 has a text on this. It says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, Will has touched on that. This is this is an area, I believe, where we delving into the deep mysteries of the incarnation that we cannot really answer. How how could Christ, in his human nature, go through exactly what we're going through? because we know that uh, the incarnation was both his divine nature and his human nature, and yet it was necessary in his human nature for him to identify what we went through. It's interesting, the um, Hebrew for for Hebrews 4.15, I think, is kata panta, and it means in all things. Sometimes people get off on tangents. They say Christ had to be tempted in exactly the same way as we in absolutely everything. The actual correct translation in the Greek suggests that he was tempted variously in all. And the temptations of Christ and the sufferings that he had, I believe the sufferings could be related to the fact that from virtually the time that he began his ministry, he was rejected by the leaders of Israel. Right throughout his ministry, he's described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Even his own disciples let him down time after time after time. I think if you want to bring it down to a very literal level, your closest friends, your closest confidants, when they don't understand you, they don't understand your mission, they don't understand your methods, and they don't understand where all of this is leading, that would lead to an agony of soul Uh, that could only be relieved uh, in prayer to his father. Because remember, he said, I didn't come down to do my own will. I came down to do the will of my father in heaven. They're just some brief insights into what it means to uh, that the captain of their salvation had to be perfected through suffering. I believe the word perfected can be misunderstood. I I would rather say that he, he was matured through the suffering that he he suffered because if he um, was a sinner in any sense, he couldn't be our saviour. So therefore it had to relate to the refinement, I believe, of his physical nature 
so that now, as he uh, is our high priest in heaven, now he can understand what we're going through. When we're rejected, he can understand it. When people misunderstand it, he knows what that's like. When people outright uh, scorn us and spit on us, he's been through all of that. And um, I think that encourages us to realise that this elder brother of ours, he's been through the lot. There's nothing that we will go through that he hasn't already pioneered and hasn't already overcome. And I think that's good news. Yeah, that's really well explained, Brenton. I, I sometimes think that we don't really grasp all the negativity that Jesus had in his life, as you've put sure. it very well there. Yeah. He was uh, really rejected, firstly, by his own people, which be hard enough, uh, and then his friends and followers. And it must have been a massive burden he was carrying. And I don't think any of us, well, certainly myself, I don't think I could carry that burden if we were rejected by everybody. It would just be overcoming. But fortunately, he had that really close connection with his father. And I believe that's obviously where his strength came from. Joe, Moses held in high regard by the Jews and the Hebrew Christians serves as a type, an example of Christ. In what way? Did he do this? Well, as you said, Jews, the Jews revered Moses. Um, and according to Jewish tradition, Moses was considered the greatest prophet who ever lived. I guess that despite his importance in Judaism, the, you know, Judaism stresses that he was only a human being and not to be worshipped. Only God is worthy of worship in Judaism. However, there are some similarities um, and that's why people say that he's, you know, a type or an example of Christ. I think if we look at it from the biblical point of view, from Hebrews eleven twenty three, I think the similarity begins very early on. It says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were afraid of the king's edict. We see here that both Moses and Jesus have a very similar beginning in life. They're both sought. You know, the Egyptians wanted to kill Moses and his life was only spared by, by God and the wisdom of his mother who had put him in a waterproof basket and set him among the reeds for Pharaoh's daughter to find. And so his life was spared not by just cleverness, but by God's overseeing this. And so when Jesus was born, we know Herod sent out his soldiers and many, many children were slaughtered in the pursuit of, of Christ. But we know that Jesus, um, his parents took him to Egypt um, and hid there, sought refuge there. So we have that similarity right from the very beginning. And then, of course, in verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. Rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. And if anyone's had a look at the contents of, you know, one of these pyramids, you know, that they've retrieved these sarcophagi and um, beautiful gold-plated, um, all sorts of beautiful artefacts. You could see that there were a lot of things that might turn a young man's head. But here we have the Jesus stepping down from heaven, from um, the courts of heaven to come to a very dark place, to obey his father's word, to live the perfect life, to redeem mankind. And 
also Moses in wanting to lead his people out of Egypt. He stepped out of the courts. He preferred, I guess he didn't know the end from the beginning, but he made that choice that he would rather be obedient to God than to stay in the palace. It would be very tempting to stay there because he was loved. He was respected. He was, in fact, I think I'd read somewhere he was in training to be the next pharaoh. So in a worldly sense, he gave up a lot. And here we have Jesus giving up everything to come to this dark place for you and for myself and for everyone. It really is an amazing and I think unbelievable story that, of course, it is a true story. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 to 14, I'd like to read about Jesus putting his royalty aside to suffer for his people. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Now this tells us this is a very interesting verse because it shows that Jesus was following the example that God had set up for sin sacrifices way back in the days of Moses. Jesus is about to be killed outside the walls of Jerusalem and in doing so would actually sanctify repentant sinners taking their sins of the whole world. Also, the city that he speaks of is the new Jerusalem, which God will send down from heaven after his people have been in heaven for a thousand years. Nietzsche, would you like to read a section from this week's study? Okay, this was part of the problem for the readers of Hebrews. After, after suffering persecution and rejection, many of them began to feel ashamed of Jesus. Uh, by their actions, some were in danger of putting Jesus to an open shame instead of honoring him. Thus, Paul constantly calls the readers to hold fast the confession of their faith. But God wants us to recognize Jesus as our God and our brother, as our Redeemer. Jesus has paid our debt as our brother. Jesus has shown us the way that we should live in order that we will be conformed to the image of the Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Thank you, Leecher. Such amazing words. In John 6 and verse 53, believers are counseled to do what? Just as Jesus partook of humanity by becoming flesh and blood to save sinners, so in order to be saved, we have to partake of him to be saved. Brenton, would you like to answer this one? The text says this, Then Jesus said to the most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. It's talking about spiritual flesh and spiritual food, because if it isn't, we have an example of the Eucharist in this particular statement where those who follow the Eucharist believe that they are literally eating the flesh of the Son of God and drinking his blood. They misunderstood him deliberately. If you have a look at the verses surrounding this text again, 
they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They, they obviously understood that he was not talking about physical food. What he is talking about, I believe, is what do we know as the bread of life? The bread of life is the word of God. The blood, I believe, symbolizes the sacrifice that Christ was going to make, again, symbolically for us. So we are to read the word of God and we are to trust in the atoning sacrifice of his blood, because only in doing that do we have salvation. I think if they had really wanted to follow him, they would have understood that he was talking to them metaphorically and not physically or uh, in um, in our other words, in not in riddles, but they didn't understand that because they didn't want to follow him. And they said a little bit further on, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? And uh, I believe the same principle applies today. When you tell people that in order to follow Jesus, you have to accept his blood that was offered on Calvary for your behalf, there's sort of a general consensus. Well, what exactly do you mean by that? It's quite simple. Christ gave his life on Calvary for us. He shed his blood physically. And in shedding his blood physically for us, that has a spiritual application. And the spiritual application is that his blood is efficacious, if you will, to um, cover the sins of the whole world. So good news. Yes, it is good news, but it's only good news if you accept it and appropriate it to yourself. Brendan, that's such an important point. It's only good news if you accept it. You can't let it go by and forget about it. It's very, very important. Joe. What I was going to say was that it was forbidden. Jews were forbidden to drink blood. Mm. So this was definitely not a literal thing that Jesus was talking about. And I wonder, to some extent, did they really understand? And that's why they turned away because it would have been just too hard. And, of course, this is probably the the same place where they, he turns to his disciples and, you know, he says to them, will you leave me as well? So um, this was, why is it such a hard saying? Now, if they actually thought that he was recommending that they drink human blood, um, they would have probably wanted to stone him <laughs> because this was under Mosaic law. This was completely forbidden. So yeah. what he was saying was so confrontational. Yeah, they probably just didn't know how to take it. Nick? It's also interesting that if we look in the context, you know, when Jesus said those things, you know, he spent good quality time with the disciples at the table, you know, just before his crucifixion, uh, he explained uh, some of the things he's going to go through. They have the meal together and there was the wine and the bread which symbolize very, very important for um, Jewish people also. I think we, we need to look in the context. You cannot take out of context and then make a, um, a statement and say, oh, Jesus may say this or that. I don't think so that refer in any way to what we just uh, said here about um, physical blood. But it was about what Jesus did and to commemorate that thing, because that was the relationship to continue, you know, with our brother, Jesus Christ. And I was going to say a a bit earlier that, you know, as we look into this aspect, Jesus, our faithful brother, because I grew up, you know, with um, in a family where we have three brothers and I'm the youngest. 
And, you know, it's good to have an elderly brother at some time, you know, to be defended on all aspects. But it's not so good also when you are the youngest and you don't have much to say. Because the older brother always uh, um, is kind of uh, saying, you know, and you need to listen. And I remember that when I grew up uh, and my brothers, because it's quite a big difference in between us, he said, we have to listen, you are the youngest. And I said, I'm not young anymore. You know, I'm a grown up man now. And I stood, stood up. The reason I'm saying this is because Jesus is not applying that. You see, he's the one, our elderly brother who is taking care of us on all all aspects even when he said these words you know that uh, do this in remembrance of me you know when you drink this cup you know which is my blood or eat this bread which represents my flesh he told actually everyone there present and us all up to today that he is still in that relationship of uh, taking care of all our needs. And he likes to have a relationship. He's not just detaching himself and said, okay, you are on your own now. You are a grown up man. You are on your own. Now he's taking care of all our needs. That's interesting, Nick. Uh, I know as a, uh, uh, how can I put it? I didn't have any brothers or sisters, but over the years I've spoken to many families uh, who obviously have brothers and sisters. And as a general rule, the elder brother usually looks after the younger ones. But if you're single like me, you have to look after yourself. But it's wonderful that Jesus has come along and he looks after us all. I've got a, a question for all the panel, and maybe you would each give what your thoughts are on this one. Do you think it was easy for Jesus to be our kinsman redeemer in order to redeem human beings from the clutches of Satan? Leecher, your thoughts on this? We have some texts which we can rely on. And I would like to mention um, Hebrew 2.16 to 18, where it says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And um, in in parallel with this, we can read in Isaiah chapter 53. I would like to mention just two verses, verse 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We are like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was our faithful brother, always he was there for us. And when he suffered on the cross, or even just before the cross, he was transformed. Actually, he was man and God. And we know that we inherit genes from the mother and from the father. Um, He inherited genes from his mother, from Mary, and from the Holy Spirit. So he 
Jesus was divine and man. And also in his manship, he became, he was transformed by the relationship with God that he had always. And he relied on God always for his faith. And every morning when he was going up on the mountain to pray, he received God's plan for for the day, what to do and how to do and where to to go and and do God's work. And uh, he was there for us always, very faithfully, in contrast with us. The lesson which I learned from here is that we have to go to God also to, to receive God's plan and not to work on our plan. Because many times it happened with us that we bring our to God our plan and say, okay, Lord, you know, I can, I can work it here and here and there, but I need a little bit of help, you know, here and there. Just briefly, Ken, was it easy for Jesus to be a kinsman redeemer? The answer, I believe, to that is no. And there are a couple of aspects to it. First of all, in taking upon himself that role, he was demonstrating to heaven that there is a difference between Satan sinning in heaven and us sinning down here. Now, does that mean that God sees sin in different ways? No, sin is sin. But we've got to remember that Lucifer stood right alongside God's throne. He understood God better than any created being. Human beings, Adam and Eve, did not have that same experience he had. And I believe that in taking upon himself our humanity, he was demonstrating to the angels who hadn't sinned and also the unfallen worlds the true love of God, that he would subjugate himself, that he would humiliate himself to the level of a slave to save a race of people who were doomed had he not done that. So I believe it would have been very hard. I mean, you can read books like The Story of Redemption and others, and they'll tell you very, very clearly that it was hard for God to give his son, and yet he did. So I think at the end of it all, the, the important thing is praise the Lord. He did take upon himself the role of kinsman redeemer, even though initially it would have been quite a wrench for him to do it. Thank you, Brent. And Joe? I, I agree with everything Brenton said. It was hard, and yet it was easy. <laughs> I yes, say. yeah, I say what you're saying. When, when you love someone, nothing is too hard. People have run into burnt, burning houses to rescue pets, even photograph albums, I would say. This analogy is a little bit silly, I suppose, with pets and things, but it demonstrates that um, when we when love is involved, great sacrifices are made and willingly and considered as nothing. But uh, what would a parent child, parent of a sick child not do um, to bring that child back to health? Parents have laid down their lives for their children, indeed even their friends. Um, there's a verse that says this, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this if he lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus did this without counting the cost. So, yes, it, was, it wasn't easy. It was very hard. But I think at the same time, if you love, nothing is hard. Nothing is too hard to sacrifice. Nothing's too big to sacrifice for the one that you love. So I guess it's, it's one of those things, isn't it, that it's hard yeah. and yet it's easy. Mm. Joe, that's an incredibly important point that you have brought out there. 
And as you say, love, if love is involved, nothing is too much trouble. And we can certainly see that when God has given his only son, Jesus, to come to this earth to save sinners like you and me. Although Jesus became fully flesh and blood, he was, and we are engaged, are we engaged in a purely physical conflict? Will, would you like to answer that one? Well, no, um, Ken. We we are, in, like he was, engaged in uh, a terrible spiritual conflict with the enemy of souls against temptation to sin, and uh, our eternal life does depend on it. Let me read Ephesians 6, verse 11 and 12. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And here is the key verse. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, it said about Jesus, There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, so that you may be able to bear it. And so we have a high priest now who can, uh, who is not unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but uh, we have one with, uh, that was always tempted like we are. And so our struggle with sin is not left to, um, we're not left to struggle with sin alone. God will help us. Well, that's an important point again you have brought out because many people in the world don't realize there is a spiritual conflict in this world. There's hidden forces we cannot see. And the Bible does talk about these in certain places in the scriptures. But all over the world, there is evil and wickedness. And many of this is these evil angels that we cannot see, but they are there. Joe, do you think we are alone in this struggle with evil? Uh, Definitely not. And we know that because of what the Bible tells us. We're not alone in our struggle, but we also need to believe that and we need to fortify our minds with God's word and that way we will know what is real because we know that the world will be ensnared in a delusion at the end of time. So we need to know what is real, what is true and what is not. And based on the word of God, we're able to make good choices. There is a very good text in Psalms 46.1 that says, that God is our refuge and ever-present help in trouble. And as Will has already mentioned, he will not allow us to be tempted more than we can bear. And in Corinthians, he tells us no temptation is overtaken you except what is common to mankind. So, hey, cheer up. And God is faithful that he will not let you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And that is very encouraging too. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And that's a wonderful promise. So in 1 Peter 5.10, it also admonishes us to be alert and vigilant. So be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. In short, we are not abandoned or alone. 
God is always with us and we can take great comfort from that. Jesus has promised in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. It sounds like a happy family, doesn't it? So the answer to your question is no, we are definitely not alone and we not need not fear that we have been abandoned or we're left orphans or that we've been forgotten or that we've done too many bad things and God doesn't love us anymore. God is always there and he's always watching and he's held, holding out a hand. Well, that's certainly good news. Brenton? Just a, um, an, an addendum, I guess, to what Joe has said, and she's certainly covered it very well. Um, it's a statement that came to mind while she was talking, and I can't think exactly where it is, but um, it says something along these lines, that God would rather send every angel out of heaven than allow one person struggling with temptation to be overcome by the devil. That gives you the depth of interest, the depth of love, and the depth of commitment that heaven has to seeing each one of us in the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure if we were to ask all the Christians out there, do we understand the depth of God's love? I doubt very much any of us could grasp that. It's just so incredibly amazing that I myself definitely cannot grasp it, and I'm sure other people would be the same. Earlier we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14, 15, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Leecha, is this good news or what? Yes, it's a very good news because God, uh, Jesus never abandoned us. He never abandoned his disciples. He never abandoned his brothers. One of the disciples, Peter, uh, um, denied him. So he, he was never ashamed uh, of them. Uh, instead, uh, Jesus was praying in the um, uh, Garden of Gethsemane when he asked the disciples to support him in prayer. When he came back to see them, they were asleep. So Jesus never abandoned them. Instead, he prayed to God, said, Father, I want to have them. You know, uh, I don't want to abandon them. So, uh, yeah, Jesus, as, as our big brother, he was always there, even for us today. Will, what does it mean to fix our eyes on, or as in the Bible version, looking onto Jesus? Well, that reminds me of the text, Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3, Ken. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders this and the sin that uh, so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Here is the verse, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Uh, com commenting on the phrase, fixing our eyes on Jesus, Ken, let me just say, 
focusing our eyes on Jesus has an enlivening effect on our spiritual lives. He's not only our example, but our source of strength and our only hope of life in eternity. And so let's, let us see, as it were, more and more of him in every aspect of our lives. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 to 3, it talks about to consider him, speaking of Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. I believe consider him means to take stock. In other words, to think about all that Jesus has done for each and every one of us, to try and understand the enormous price he has paid for our souls. He has, after all, given all that you and I can be reconciled to God and thereby enduring we have a future that he has promised, which none of us can imagine, filled with amazing things, plus living on the new earth, the one Adam and Eve had in the very beginning. There are approximately 31 reasons given for why Christ came to this sin-drenched planet. The basic reason was because he loved us so much, he yes. couldn't give up. He came to save the lost, to show us what God is like, to destroy the works of the devil, to bring light to a dark world, and many other reasons. In addition to these reasons is another important one. He came to show us how to live. Put another way, he came as our role model. Brenton. What did Jesus, as our example, say about himself? Let me read two verses, Ken, John 15, verse 9, as well as verse 10, because you need to read verse 9 to get the context of verse 10. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, uh, as I have kept, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Now, we've often had um, John 15.10 quoted. I don't know how many times in my life I've had John 15.10 quoted to show that it is necessary for us to keep the commandments. But the basis upon which we keep the commandments, according to that, is that based on verse 9. Christ kept his Father's commandments and abode in his love. And if we want to abide in Christ's love, we need to keep his commandments. But the whole basis, the undergirding of our obedience is always love. Any other basis, it's simply legalism. And I think it's very important to accept the fact that if you are keeping God's or striving to keep God's commandments on any basis other than your love for God, you're, you're going down a dead end street. It will not lead to salvation. Uh, quite the contrary. I think it's very important to understand that this term abide means to rest, it means a resting place, it means peace, and it means security. So when Jesus said, and here he is, only a matter of hours before he's about to be arrested, saying to them, I have kept my father's commandments, 
and I abide in his love. If you obey me and keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I kept my father's commandments. There's a complementarian statement there. I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. You keep my commandments and you will abide in my love. And further on in the chapter, it says that those who are obedient, it says we, that's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we will come and make our home with him. Our home with him means we will come and dwell within that person if they are obedient to God on the basis of love. I think that's a great and a very positive statement, Ken. It's certainly wonderful news. I'm just going to throw this one open to the panel What does it mean to you personally that Jesus identifies himself as our brother? From my experience, Jesus was there for me as my big brother always, through thick and thin, let's say. And uh, the lesson which I have to learn for myself in our days as I live is that Jesus was never ashamed of his brothers. He was always there as the big brother for those in his time and for us. But am I ashamed of my Jesus, of my God, of my religion? Am I ashamed when I face others around me of my religion practice, of my Jesus that he redeemed me? You know, talking about religion, uh, some people are saying, oh, religion is for those who are weak, for those who are scared and or afraid or something, you know, for poor people. And many people are ashamed of God. But there are others who are standing bold. It doesn't matter through what are they going. They are not ashamed. They just stand straight and face others with love, with confidence of Jesus, of our big brother. And this is what I want to stand for Jesus because he stands for me and I want to stand for him. Can I too know what it is to place my trust and sometimes even my life in the hands of my older brother? There have been experiences where he saved my life. Now, if the brother to whom we look is ordained to rule the universe, Then the commitment is done with greater meaning and devotion. For me, Jesus has proved himself over and over. And I thank him that he even thinks of allowing me to call him my older brother. Well, well, I have to add to that myself that over the years, the things that uh, Jesus through God has done for me, I I could write a book on it. It's just absolutely unbelievable. And uh, I think it's very encouraging when you speak to many Christians today, they all share that same wonderful message. Brenton, you have a little story you want to tell us or a quote? It's just a quote, Ken, I I thought would summarise what we've been talking about very well. It says this, The elder brother of our race is by the eternal throne. He looks upon every soul who is turning his face towards him as the saviour. He knows by experience What are the weaknesses of humanity? What are our wants? And where lies the strength of our temptations? He is watching over you, trembling child of God. Are you tempted? He will deliver. Are you weak? He will strengthen. Are you ignorant? He will enlighten. Are you wounded? He will heal. He healeth the brokenhearted and bindeth up their wounds. 
Thank you, Brenton. Dear listeners, Jesus is our example. As a human being, he lived a sinless life, doing good and being an example and blessing for all. He was a life of selfishness, prayer and total commitment. Jesus is the perfect model on whom we can pattern our lives, our behavior, our hopes, our trust and our future. It is, as Queen Elizabeth said in her 2008 Christmas message to the Commonwealth, the world would do well to follow the example and teaching of Jesus Christ. Listeners, won't you make him your faithful elder brother, our kinsman redeemer, our avenger of blood, your model too? Joe, would you like to finish in prayer? Before I pray, I just there. You know, we've accepted Jesus as our elder brother, but there may be people out there who who haven't and who might be listening, and I guess. A take-home message for, from this discussion would be that we are indeed never alone, and loneliness is something is a big curse in today's society. But we are never truly alone, and even if we're feeling abandoned or forgotten, do not trust your feelings. You know, trust in the Word of God. The treasure of heaven has been put out for you to save you, to save both to all of us. So don't listen to any other narrative. God loves and is love. And nothing will change that. So I guess we need to look to him, our elder brother. Perfect love casts out fear. So, And he has his love is greater than anything that you might have done, thought, or wished. So we need to put ourselves in his hands. And and I'd like to close with prayer. Thank you, um, Ken, for inviting me. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. And Jesus... We thank you for being our kinsman redeemer, our elder brother, our protector, the one we can run to for sanctuary and always being there for us, for saving us. Help us to trust and hold on, believing that you love us and have done all to save us and that you yearn for the day when all of your fellow brothers and sisters will be together. You have promised to return to restore all things. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Thank you, everyone, for your participation today. It's wonderful to be able to talk and know about uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, a responsible uh, brother. We invite you to join us again when we are going to look into Jesus, the giver of rest. Until then, may God richly bless you and hope to hear from you soon. God bless.